Welcome to the Jack's Packs Channel podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who is perhaps best known as the author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Dr. Ian McGilchrist is a former fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and former consultant psychiatrist and clinical director at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospital, London. He has a he has been a research fellow in neuroimaging at Johns Hopkins Hospital, Baltimore, and a fellow of the Institute of Advanced Studies in Stellenbosch. Ian has published articles and research papers on a wide range of topics spanning literature, medicine, philosophy, and psychiatry. In addition to the master and his emissary, Ian has written several other books, including his soon-to-be-released book, The Matter With Things. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jax. Just to give the listeners a bit of a background, what led you to a career in neurology and to write in your book, The Master and His Emissary? Well, um, there are probably two reasons, one rather sort of personal and the other more intellectual. Um, the personal one is simply that my father was a doctor and his father was a doctor. And um, my father tried to avoid becoming a doctor by reading economics, but then ended up being a doctor. And I tried to avoid it by studying English and philosophy, but ended up a doctor. I think there's something about, I grew up in a family where there was something about, you know, helping others. And I always wanted to have a role either as a priest, actually, as a young person or as a doctor. But I think the more interesting aspect is an intellectual quest, um, which I can explain rather quickly. Um, for reasons to do with my writing about the philosophy of literature, I was concerned about the way in which we see things as disembodied, particularly in the modern era, but that the whole process of approaching a work of art was one of disembodying it. Something that was unique, implicit and embodied became something general explicit and abstract. And so I started going to seminars by philosophers on the mind-body problem, which seemed to me at the root of it. And I just found the philosophers were much too disembodied in their approach to the question. And at that time, um, that amazing book by Oliver Sacks, Awakenings, came out. And I was absolutely, you know, blown away by it because here was a, an example of somebody who was able to see how somebody's whole person and view of life changed when something happened to their brain. And he wrote uh, in that book not just beautifully detailed uh, cases of unique individuals, but was able to see how there were philosophical implications for all of us from the nature of mental disease rooted in the brain. And I thought, well, this is the way to go. Um, and I need to study medicine. I was 28 at the time, which I, even then was rather late. Now it would be considered almost impossible, I suppose, to start a, a whole training in medicine at 28, but I did. Um, and ended up working in the overlap region between neurology and psychiatry. I did a fairly low-level job in neurology and neurosurgery, and then went to the uh, Bethlehem uh, Royal um, and Maudsley Hospital in London uh, to do my training as a psychiatrist and have always worked in the area of neuropsychology, neuropsychiatry in which mind and body 
are most closely united. And it's been a revelation to me. There's a fascinating video that listeners will enjoy called Spiders, Yes, But Why Cats? where you talk about the many schizophrenic patients you had as a psychiatrist and the recurring patterns you saw in their visual artworks that uncovered something similar to what you saw in brain research. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of schizophrenic artwork and its parallels with brain hemisphere research? Yes. Um uh, maybe I'll leave the caps to the, <laughs> to the end of this, but uh, there were a number of very obvious um, features, and, and I, I was led to approach it partly because uh, the Bethlehem Hospital, um, where I chained, has one of the greatest um, collections of art by patients anywhere in the world. Um, so there is a whole museum there of such artworks, and I found them riveting. They were not only very interesting and intriguing, but they also seemed to me to express something about, as they inevitably would, about the nature of the world seen through the eyes of someone suffering from schizophrenia. And I suppose the main, uh, the main things uh, that struck me, and struck me also in the paintings of my own patients, because if they were at all interested in art, I would often ask them to let me see their paintings, and in some cases they gave them to me. One is fragmentation. One of the big differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, uh, about which I've spent 30 more years um, studying and, and, and writing, uh, and we may come to that later because it's nothing like the, the thing that people often think when they hear left and right hemispheres mentioned. It's far, far more interesting and complex than the usual cliches. But in any case, one of the main differences is that the left hemisphere tends to see things as bits and pieces, fragments that have to be put together to make any kind of sense. And the right hemisphere tends to see things as already a whole in which one's attention may be directed to some part, which is almost created by the mental effort of, of focusing on a detail. Um, Going along with this is a difference between the left hemisphere's view of the body as an assemblage of parts, an ear, a nose, a thumb, a knee, a foot, whereas the right hemisphere has what's called the body image, which is not just um, a visual image, but an image in all modalities of the body as a whole, and tends to see the body as a single whole um, entity um, that is the ground of what it is perceiving. And often these paintings would show this uh, bizarre arrangement of body parts, either completely disconnected in space or stuck together in the most improbable sorts of ways. One particular feature of interest is eyes. Um, uh, one of the commonest distinguishing features of paintings by schizophrenics is that there's often a disembodied eye in it. And you see this going right back to the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, I associate that with the fact that schizophrenia is by no means a regression to a sort of primal condition, but is in fact a hyper-rationalistic condition in which one's self-conscious awareness never lets go, so that one is aware of one's own thought being scrutinized all the time by this all-seeing eye. Then there is a sort of morbid geometrism, uh, which uh, means a sort of schematization of everything into something that could be put together with um, um, a, a compass and a, and a set square and all the rest. Um, 
Curious things like asymmetry of faces, which is another common feature of right hemisphere damage, as indeed that schematization is common in people who, whose right hemisphere is not working. They substitute a plan, as it were, of the world or a plan of a person or a model for the actual experienced uh, person. Uh, another is the intrusion of text into pictures because the left hemisphere is uh, more or less obsessed by language. Its, it's great contribution is the ability to put things into words. And uh, often you'd see rather irrelevant intrusions of text in the middle of paintings. Um, and then there are a lot of paintings which show people reduced to mechanisms, puppets, dolls, skeletons, and other aspects, which again uh, are tipped towards the left hemisphere's take on uh, a human being. So there were a whole lot of these elements that confirmed my view that schizophrenia is in fact a right hemisphere deficient syndrome in which the left hemisphere has taken over the whole field and gone into overdrive. But you mentioned cats, <laughs> which I provocatively put in the title of a talk I gave. Um, the spiders were because there was a very striking painting by a young woman um, of herself, of self-portrait, um, when she was 21, and it's extremely accomplished. And at 22, after having a, a, a schizophrenic breakdown, she painted her self-portrait again, and one half of her face, the eye, is dangling out, and there is what is either a scorpion or a spider in it. Um, and spiders and insects that are rather sort of repulsive to the social and emotional instinctual self are quite common themes in yeah. uh, schizophrenic painting. But one other one is cats. And um, these cats may be there in an entirely random way, like the sort of eye that's suddenly put there. There'd be a whole picture with made up of little bits all over, and then suddenly there's a cat, or a scene that actually purports to hang together, and then there's an intrusion of a cat. Um, and this goes back again to the 18th century, to some of the very first paintings by people with schizophrenia that we have, an obsession with cats. And this gelled quite nicely with my clinical experience, because I had a patient at one stage who made national and possibly international news by climbing into the um, lion's enclosure at Regent's Park Zoo in London and was horribly mauled. Um, but he was obsessed with cats and talked about um, an imaginary creature, a, a pet cat of his. Um, and you get things like Louis Wayne, a, a, paint, a painter that quite a lot of people know because his paintings have been turned into rather sort of cute cards of um, cats sort of dressed in, in sort of late 19th century dress and uh, sitting at table having parties and, and so on. But as his schizophrenia got worse, um, these figures became more and more geometric, more and more broken down, more and more um, over-detailed. Fascinating, actually, the whole thing. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And the correlation between the Toxoplasma gondii parasite, uh, which can only reproduce in cats, uh, and various mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, has led some scientists to draw the association between the domestication of cats and the prevalence of schizophrenia. Do you think there's some link between the Toxoplasma gondii parasite and the appearance of cats in schizophrenic artwork? It's a, a marvellous question, and the answer can only be speculative, of course. Um, you're referring 
to the work of E. Fuller Torrey, an American psychiatrist who has researched this subject in some depth and has shown that um, from a point of view of epidemiology, uh, the presence of cats in the household where either the mother, when pregnant, um, uh, had the, 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 the future patient uh, in her womb or in the childhood home where the child grew up, uh, there were more commonly cats than in those that don't. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you must get rid of your cat if you've got children or are pregnant, but there is a very um, small but nonetheless statistically significant correlation. And there is a, a mechanism which can be uh, understood um, in terms of the T. gondii parasite. It's an interesting parasite because it infects rats and to it is then picked up by cats that eat the rats. And this parasite has a fascinating um, tendency to make rats lose their normal fear of cats. So instead of running away when they see a cat, they will even approach or seek out cats. Uh, the cat then, of course, eats the parasite, and the parasite is now in the cat where it can flourish. And incidentally, it can from there be passed to humans. Um, now, if there's a connection between the, the way in which this parasite can make rats do its bidding and change their instinctual behavior in order to get it into the cat. I'm wondering if it could actually be possible that it could alter the human attention to cats. Uh, there's something in it that maybe suggests that there's you know, an affinity with cats. So uh, also historically, we know that um, cats were domesticated by the Egyptians, and I haven't talked about that, but there are a number of symbols, like indeed the all-seeing eye, which turn up at first in Egyptian art, um, but were then largely not domesticated in Europe until the, uh, at the very earliest, the late 17th century and the 18th century. And when we look back through literature, looking for examples of the mental illnesses that we now recognize, we can find most of them represented in the literature um, depression, dementia, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety states, even PTSD. But what we don't find is schizophrenia. And it's thought that the first descriptions that are recognizably schizophrenia date from the 18th century when we first started to have um, pets as cats. So it, it is a very interesting topic. Yeah, that's fascinating. One day I want to, to write about that and in fact produce a book with paintings um, done by psychotic subjects, but um, I'll come on to that when I have some peace and mental space. In your book, The Master and His Emissary, you mentioned your concern regarding what you refer to as hyper-awareness. We normally think of awareness as a positive thing, so I'm assuming you, you're thinking of a different definition of the word awareness to what a yoga teacher would use, for example. Uh, is it something like an excessive need for things to be made explicit or should we be worried about overdoing fixed point meditation like the philosopher Jay Krishnamurti seemed to think we should? Um, well, you probably know more about 
meditation than I do. I have practiced it a bit in my own way um, and find it helpful, but mainly that's mindfulness meditation. But one of the features of mindfulness meditation is that you stop certain kinds of attention, which are to one's inner thinking. And you're quite right that there must be a distinction drawn between two quite opposite kinds of attention. One is a kind of self-scrutinizing attention to the contents of one's mind, and the other is an awareness turned outwards towards the world without making judgments or formulations in language. So these things are almost mutually exclusive. And what concerns me is the way in which in the modern world, everything that is actually best understood uh, implicitly uh, is being yanked into the focus of a very diminished, analytic, explicit um, tendency to take it to bits and see whether it can really be made to stand up um, to a certain kind of purely rationalistic um, understanding. Now, the trouble with that is I'm a great believer in reason, um, and I've <laughs> it used it a great deal, as people point out, in uh, arriving at the conclusions that are in my books. But I also accept that reason doesn't encompass everything, and that if you rely entirely on things that can be made explicit in language and argued about in a rationalistic way, we will lose awareness of some very important things. Um, it's not at all uh, a sort of new agey uh, perception that uh, this is hard neuroscience, that the unconscious can take into account far more strands of information, balance them and weigh them properly, than can one's hyper-conscious intellect. It can only take in two or three things, really, and tends to exclude the rest. So there are very hard logical, rational, neuroscientific reasons for not being caged in, if you like, by um, uh, uh, what our minds can explicitly accept and argue about. So the, that's the kind of hyper-awareness that happens in schizophrenia. Uh, the eye that's scrutinizing the mind is a, a sort of a horrible hall of mirrors in which the mind is is eating itself really it's scrutinizing itself and paralyzing itself so that the simplest things yeah. that need to be done without thinking have to be thought out so you get patients with schizophrenia um, and indeed patients with right hemisphere damage finding that they have to think through the steps that are involved in doing something that uh, would have otherwise been an entirely intuitive act like simply putting one foot in front of another to walk uh, this is reminding me a little bit of a book by Choyam Trungpa called Cutting Through Spiritual Mat Materialism, uh, where he talks about people uh, doing meditation the wrong way and thinking it's kind of like being big brother, watching over yourself all the time, or watching yourself like a cat. He actually uses that analogy as well. So it's an interesting well, connection there. It is, and, and that's why... In uh, Zen, which is a, um, a philosophy, or perhaps more properly, an anti-philosophy that I that I very much um, admire and gel with, um, it said that when you think you've got it is exactly the time when you haven't. Um, that that it's when you you don't know whether you're practicing it that you are, and and this is not just a Zen insight, but is one that is common to 
most spiritual traditions across the world um, and is um, present indeed in Christianity, in, in particularly the mystical tradition, but also in St. Augustine. Yeah. Meister Eckhart would be another one that um, gets Meister Eckhart, and, I, and I, I gather from reading your new book, on which I must congratulate you, I must say, um, that uh, you are as big a fan of uh, Meister Eckhart as I am, uh, which is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Medieval Christianity. Uh, your upcoming book, The Matter with Things, is on roughly the same topic as my own soon-to-be-released book, Existential Questions. And amongst other things, I believe each of us are writing about the trouble that comes with carrying reductionist thinking over to existential questions where it doesn't necessarily belong. And I wanted to ask you if you can share your thoughts on the following. There's a Robert Shaw quote. You don't see something until you have the right metaphor to perceive it, unquote. It seems to me that people reduce themselves and their brains to machines or computers because that's all they have a concept of and they don't realise that they're thinking metaphorically. It can be useful to think in this way when doing reductionist forms of science, which are basically the ones that pay, but then they carry that thinking over to existential questions and dehumanise and torment themselves. But as the physicist Sir Roger Penrose has pointed out in his book The Emperor's New Mind, the brain does not work like a computer. For one thing, a computer cannot process meaning because it would need one instruction for why the thing is meaningful then another to explain what is meant by meaningful, and so on ad infinitum. Then, some people, claiming to be promoting a so-called spiritual view, try to get around this with slightly more inspiring-sounding metaphors, like the holographic universe idea, but still, they don't seem to realise that what they're doing is using metaphor to create a mental model of reality, rather than looking at di directly at reality. Of all the machines we've invented, the hologram does the best job of imitating reality, but it is still mechanistic and still not quite like reality itself. So why form a mental model at all? Can we go beyond this approach to resolving existential questions? You raise um, a number of very good questions or points uh, of discussion there. Starting from the end of what you said. I don't think that we can avoid a metaphor. I think that our understanding of everything is inevitably metaphorical. I think when we say that we understand something, what we mean is, uh, I see it's like something else that we already think we understand. So all the time we're trying to see how to fit whatever it is we're coming across into a pattern that we recognize in the world already. Um, which means that certain things, certain spiritual things um, uh, and certain theological concepts are almost impossible to grasp because they're not quite like any of the normal everyday models that we have. That's their, that's their peculiar quality. Um, and trying to fit them into a, 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 a um, mechanistic model simply won't work. So uh, I don't think we can avoid um, a model or a metaphor. I think you're right that, you know, we, our understanding is only as good as the metaphor that we have. So the key thing we have to do here is to scrutinize our metaphor and be on our guard against what it might be obscuring, because every metaphor or model brings out some aspects in what it is one's looking at, but at the expense of obscuring others. 
In the past, when people wanted to understand or explain phenomena, they would have tended to gravitate towards models or metaphors drawn from the natural world, things like a tree or a river or a family. But uh, in the last 150 years, it has been almost relentlessly the machine. And so pervasive is this model that most people don't understand that they're, they're altering things by using this model and appear almost baffled and hurt if you explain that um, it's not straightforward, that everything is actually like a machine. Um, and of course, if, you, if, if everything you see has been through the metaphor of a machine, you will only see things that fit that metaphor because that's the effect of using that metaphor. You don't see all the things you don't see. So I don't think we can say we can't use a metaphor. We need to be very careful of how, how we use it. And I also think that while it's quite true that we can't know anything ever for certain, we can, of course, in fact, we couldn't live at all if we didn't, make discriminations between things that are more probable, more likely, more convincing than others. And we do so by using a number of faculties together, our imagination, um, our uh, judgment formed of experience, um, our intuitions, as well as reason, and as well as scientific experiment. All these things are very important in illuminating aspects of the world. But what I think has happened in my lifetime, particularly, is that this mechanical model has been applied and is being applied um, acceleratingly to every aspect of life in a way that is enormously limiting and damaging. So um, the last thing I wanted to do um, before I popped my clogs was to get down on paper. I mean, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not making any plans to go right now. Um, but uh, I wanted to make as clear as I could um, arguments why the way we're looking at the world is enormously impoverished. And I think that the machine model is intellectually very simplistic. It's naive, it's um, uh, uh, damaging to our understanding. It's also damaging to us morally. Um, it's not just neutral, but I think has a bad effect on how we treat the world, meaning the natural world, one another, um, our own history and our personalities and personal relationships in society. And I think um, it's clouded our ability to understand all that is really of most importance to us, which is the impact of the things that really give meaning to life, like the reality of our connection with the living, seamless tissue of nature, our ability to tap into and understand the fantastic depth and insight that comes from great literature, art and music, and from the whole spiritual tradition uh, without which we founder in life, and which is enormously related, research shows, to our health, not only to our mental health um, and our moral health, but also to our physical health. So that actually belonging to a group of people who um, get together for spiritual purposes um, produces more 
drastic impacts on heart disease, cancer, uh, stroke, um, and so on, as well as on depression and anxiety, uh, ability to cope with crisis, making good decisions, not getting involved in drugs or crime, than <laughs> any other government project. So, I mean, I just put that in there because it's one aspect of what we're missing. And the connection with nature is another that we have now an enormous literature on the impact of just spending time in nature uh, peacefully, switching off one's machines and being present to the world that is living around one. And in the Master and His Emissary at the end, I talk about the impact of the social aspect of this, that when we um, see ourselves as atomistic and individualistic, we make very bad decisions for society and civilization, but we also make very bad decisions for our own happiness and health. Yeah, well said. Uh, do you think that interacting with computers so often can cause some people to start thinking like computers? For example, an obsession over slotting people into categories? <laughs> I very definitely do, and it's not enough talked about. In some ways, the more immediate problem is the one we don't see. It's not so much that computers are becoming like people. They'll never succeed very much in that. But that people are becoming like machines. Yeah. And I notice it, unless one is um, on one's guard against it, I notice it uh, having its inevitable impact Um in my own life. So I want to do something as simple as um, interact with my bank or um, interact with the Royal College of Psychiatrists or something like this. And uh, in order to do so, um, there are various things that have to be answered, yes or no, uh, in certain, you know, you must tick this and you can't move on until you've ticked one or other of these things. And there's yeah. never a box for yeah. my position, which is, well, it depends um, on what day you ask me, in what circumstances, in relation to whom, what else is going on. Um, and also I would like to give a very, you know, graded answer to this, that sometimes yes and sometimes no. There are two Zen sayings that I very much um, uh, value and we could do with applying them broadly in our lives. One is, they're very simple, yes, but, <laughs> um, which I feel about so many issues that people get passionate about, uh, yes, there is some truth yeah. in that, but you're also missing some big truths on the other side. And the other is, um, not always so. Uh, truths are never always. So, yes, I do think we're becoming more machine-like in that way. Um, and you see it in the way people talk. Um, they use a kind of disembodied, abstract, mechanistic language that um, is only normally, or was normally only found amongst the most um, impoverished, intellectually impoverished bureaucrats. But now it's become general yeah. uh, popular speech. Um, and you find things like um, people having to measure everything. And if they can't measure it, yeah. it's not real. But of course, the trouble with that is all the really important things in life cannot be made um, measurable. Um, love, um, the greatness of art, spiritual things. I mean, it's, the whole idea that you could measure them um, is to misunderstand their nature. Um, 
not, not, not just in a way that they can't be measured and misunderstand them in that way, but also to um, actually damage the idea of what they could be by thinking of them as something that could ever be me measured. So, yeah. That's it, yeah. It's very disheartening to see that. Uh, in the philosophy of model-dependent realism, the mm. claim is made that reality should be interpreted based upon scientific models of phenomena and that the only useful me uh, the only meaningful thing is the usefulness of the model. They claim it is meaningless to talk of a true reality as we can never be certain of anything. I agree that we can never be certain of anything, but the, then the modelists, let's call them, carry that way of thinking over to matters that are beyond the realm of utility and they persist in denying the importance of mystery and continue to affirm their simplified model of the world as if it represented the true reality, forgetting that they had formed a simplified model of reality for utility's sake to begin with. There are many scientists who go beyond such a simple way of thinking, but the trouble is that the most popular scientists are often the most reductionism-happy scientists, the modelists, if you like. It is they who speak most confidently in support of the simplified worldviews that make for good commercial television and pop science books. Uh, if you haven't already answered that question, have you got more thoughts on that? I have, um, many. Um, one, of course, connects with what we were just talking about, which is that there is a tendency to think that the model um, is reality um, and that if, as it were, the observed behaviour that the model was brought in uh, to try and help understand doesn't fit the model, the problem is not with the model. The problem is with us, that we don't fit the model. For example, uh, homo economicus, uh, suggests that we all um, act to maximize our own personal benefit. Uh, doesn't take into account that often we deliberately don't maximize our own personal benefit, um, partly because um, it's not um, irrational to have competing desires and you can't fulfill them all at once, partly because we get enormous pleasure out of helping others, um, doing selfless things like teaching others, um, bringing up children, and um, uh, creating works of art. Um, and so uh, we're thought to be faulty machines, if you see what I mean. So uh, in that sense, yeah. they may say, well, of course, you can't contact reality, but without realizing it, they're turning their model into a test of reality. Now, when you come to talk about certainty about whatever it is we mean when we talk of reality... You're absolutely right. I agree that we can't be certain of it. I, I've already said something about that. But that doesn't at all mean that we can't discriminate between things that are more likely or less likely, that are more truthful or less truthful about experience. And I follow the uh, philosophical trend established by William James, C.S. Peirce, John Dewey, uh, and others uh, known as pragmatism. And pragmatism is, uh, I must immediately gloss that, because pragmatism isn't what we normally mean by it in everyday discourse. Um, doing what is pragmatic is exactly what you describe, doing what is uh, works for me now. But that's not what pragmatism means. What pragmatism means is that if you adopt certain beliefs, you will find that reality catches you out less often. So your view of life, as it were, you're less often going to be tripped up by it than if you had any other particular view. Um, and I like that because it 
it says what you're doing is you're testing your philosophy all the time on what is happening in experience and saying, does that confirm this view or does it disconfirm it? So while it's not the case that we can be certain of reality, I do think we must not let go of the idea that there is some kind of reality. And the partial nature of our ability to capture that is not that we can never contact it at all. It's not that we're in a hermetically sealed room with no windows on the world, watching a representation on a screen. Um, and this is the best we can get in terms of contact with the world. We can really contact the world. You know, when I, when I see, as there is now, um, the snow uh, outside, I know that the temperature is cold. I know that I will fall over if I don't take due care. I know that I'm going to need to light a fire and all these things. And it's, it's absolutely not made up. But the, so the partial nature of our knowledge is not that we only partly get to reality. We get to it all the time. Uh, when I taste chocolate, that really is the taste of chocolate. It makes no sense to say, well, it's just a representation of the taste of chocolate. There is no other kind of taste of chocolate. But it is only partial because we can only see what we can see from this particular place we're standing. So going back to the model of the room that has no windows, which a lot of neuroscientists now espouse, this idea that we are like a homunculus inside the brain that is trapped in the brain and can't really contact the world but only see its representations of it. Rather than that, what I would say is we're in a room, an attic room, with a view. And with that view, we really do see the world, and we can go out into that world. But we don't see what we can't see from that point of view. There is um, a Zen garden, um, a rock garden. You know, those wonderful gardens of rocks and gravel. Uh, and I think it's called Roanji. And in it, there are, I forget, is it 13, 14, 15 stones? But from any one place in the garden, there is always one stone that you can't see. I think that's just brilliant as um, a vision of uh, a contact with reality. Yeah, it's a good analogy. But uh, just go, go back perhaps to your point about um, uh, the hologram. I think this one's going to have an image. It's a better one than the machine model. It has its limitations, it's not just mechanical, and the thing it draws attention to that's so important is that everything can be seen as a whole or a part. What is a part of something in one context is a whole of something at another level. And what is whole at one level is part of something greater that it is um, uh, taken up into. So that I rather like. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think if, if it was sort of uh, defined as a non-mechanistic hologram, Mm. then it would be more meaningful. Yes. So long yes. as it's not mistaken for, for well, something that's false. One of the things I've really learned to value is the, the model of the river, the idea that reality flows. And this is not just present in all the great literature, wisdom literature of East and West, uh, but is also present in our understanding of the world, at least as experienced by the right hemisphere. And just to explain for your listeners, the right hemisphere 
is where we have our most um, immediate perceptions of the world, um, our preconceptual uh, contact with the world. The left hemisphere is the one that does actually have a representation only, which is why when it's uh, it, it, it inspects itself uh, and thinks analytically and rationalistically about experience, it inevitably finds it's looking at a representation because the left hemisphere is like that. But the right hemisphere actually is seeing the presencing of something, something coming into being for it. So that is a very important distinction. And when experience is happening, it is flowing. But when it is represented, the flow cannot be represented. It becomes digital. It becomes sliced as an old cine film is. There isn't any movement in it any longer. There is no seamlessness. There's just one uh, image after another, one point after another following very rapidly. Now that may sound like, yeah, well, that's a very small um, distinction. It doesn't really matter because it looks looks like it flows. But actually in that observation is a whole philosophical world, the importance of which I can't begin to go into right now. But well, it's in my book if people want to, to know more. Yeah. And uh, when is your book coming out, The Matter With Things? Well, the trouble you know. with it is that it's very, 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 very long. Um, and I was contracted to write um, a single book that could have been up to as long as The Master and His Emissary. Um, but in writing what I wrote, I found that I had to go into so many subjects um, that it's ended up being three times as long and can't really be published as one book. So my publishers are um, bravely grappling with it now, and I don't know what the outcome will be. But I don't think it will be coming out anytime very soon because it's it's such a colossal task to I, i'll probably have to edit it in various ways and you know then it'll need a lot of processing in order to get published but it's it's just very very long it's it's got 5700 footnotes and a bibliography that is 198 pages in nine point so um but it's necessary to do that if like me you're saying uh, things that run quite contrary to the spirit of the age. Um, if I was saying all the things that everybody loves to hear, like, oh, yeah, we're just machines and that model works very well. And, you know. But if I was saying, no, hang on, there are all kinds of things here that are quite contrary to what you believe, like relationships exist prior to the very things that are being related. You know, what? That doesn't make any sense. You can't have relationships until you've got the things that are related. But, well, no, I don't think so. And there are a whole lot of other things like that. Now, if you're saying things that are contrary to what people believe, you've got to give all the evidence. So I give evidence from neuroscience, from physics, from philosophy, uh, and so on, and from spiritual literature. So, it, 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 you know, it's a sort of, I don't know, it's one of those huge works that people don't like nowadays because, you know, and your book is marvellous. I so much take my hat off to you because you've managed to cover some very, very fine things in, I think, 28 pages, where mine is reckoned to be 2,250 pages. Wow. Oh, thank you for the compliment. I'll, I'm, I'm going to love your book. I'll, I'll you <laughs> one person. That's, that's, uh, I can imagine uh, the Buddhist monks using your book uh, when they're studying emptiness. It's fairly relevant to the topic of emptiness, I think. Well, if it's of any um, interest, I've found that I've been invited onto podcasts by um, Buddhists, um, at least as commonly as by any other group of people. 
So Buddhists are always asking me, will you come and talk to us and so on. So that is true, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because okay. I've uh, never well, studied might... Buddhism. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. I just, fo- it's, just it's find that I'm, an, very I'm a natural-born Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, we uh, might wrap it up there. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, it's been fascinating talking to you. Uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, we've got links in the description to point listeners to your web pages and books. Excellent. Uh, your new book will be called The Matter With Things, and I hope listeners will head over to channelmcgilchrist.com to check out the web community you're developing there. I hope we can talk again in the future, Ian. Thank you very much, Jax. I look forward to that enormously. And good luck with your book. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Thanks for coming on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Jax Pax Journal podcast, where I interview insightful scientists, artists, comedians, and others about their work and interests. I'd like to close this episode with an essay from my soon-to-be-released book, Existential Questions. In my book, I respond to long-standing existential questions, finding surprisingly effective insights from fields such as cognitive linguistics, embodied philosophy, Buddhism, and other areas of philosophy. Some questions covered include, what comes first, mind or matter? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is meant by beginningless time? Do we have free will? How can purposeless activity be more meaningful than purposeful activity? And others. Here I will give my response to the question, what is the meaning of life? When a question is as long-standing as, what is the meaning of life? We should be suspicious that the question itself is being asked in the wrong way. Looking at the question with fresh eyes, it becomes obvious that the question itself is worded very poorly in a linguistic sense. What does the question even mean? It will be much easier to get to the heart of the matter if we reword the question to unearth what is really being asked. What is really being asked is not, what is the meaning of life, but, is my life significant? We don't judge a sausage dog's life to be insignificant because it's useless. In fact, people spend a lot of money on sausage dogs purely because they appreciate their presence. It is the same with a baby. And we do not judge a crippled person's life to be insignificant because they are not of utility. In fact, if the caretaker is interested in spiritual learning, it could be argued that the person who is crippled is doing more for the caretaker than the caretaker is doing for the person who is crippled. But this doesn't completely solve the original question. Is my life significant? The question begs an answer not only to, do I have a right to exist, but also to the question, why must I suffer? Well, the surest answer to that is to point out that, just as a three-year-old cannot fathom the mind of a 30-year-old, perhaps no human being can fathom the intelligence of the cosmos. Anybody with a good deal of intelligence themselves can accept that there is likely to be some kind of intelligence about the universe that is beyond the scope of human understanding. Why assume that that intelligence would be nothing but a hard, cold, calculating intelligence that could not possibly possess any sense of justice at all? when we ourselves are a part of this universe and have a sense of justice. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Sir Roger Penrose wrote in his book The Emperor's New Mind that computers cannot possibly compute a sense of meaning.
because in order to do so, they'd have to take one instruction for why a thing is meaningful, then another to explain what is meant by meaningful, and yet another to explain what is meant by that, and so on ad infinitum. Us human beings, we have a sense of meaning, lingering in the background activity of our awareness, and a sense of justice too. In modern life, we are easily led to believe that the intellect can solve any dilemma. But the intellect is really quite a narrow part of experience, and does not encompass our whole capacity. As mentioned earlier, the root of the word define is to bring to an end. And so we should not be surprised when attempts to define meaning, life or soul, take us to a spiritual desert, a dead end, a lifeless view of the world and of ourselves that has drawn the human out of the human and reduced the being to a collection of parts, which each on their own are mechanistic and without soul. But the whole cannot be found in the parts. The properties of water cannot be found in the properties of hydrogen, nor in the properties of oxygen, nor in the sum of the two. And likewise, the warm spirit of a human being cannot be found in any part of her, nor in any description of her, nor in any argument as to why she should exist. Her worth cannot be measured, yet it can so easily be sensed. A common argument against the meaningfulness of life is that the intellect and memories and even the maturity of character can seem to slide away from a person when they acquire Alzheimer's disease or dementia. But then there is the possibility that, just as the music coming from a radio isn't really coming from a radio, but is actually coming from a transmission tower, memories may also be stored non-locally, and the brain may simply be a marker or a receiver. Even the self-acclaimed militant atheist Richard Dawkins recently admitted in an interview that he likes to consider the idea that maybe memories are stored non-locally, like the information stored in the iCloud. It may be that neuroscientists are mistaking the map for the territory. After all, if the brain and consciousness worked in as straightforward a manner as some neuroscientists argue it does, then why wouldn't we be seeing 100% correlations in neuroscience studies, rather than the much lower correlations that are actually seen? I'd like to close with two quotes. The first from Huang Po. Men are afraid to forget their minds, fearing to fall through the void with nothing to stay there for. They do not know that the void is not really void, but the realm of the real Dharma. And another from Wan. It is too clear, and so it is hard to see. A dunce once searched for a fire with a lighted lantern. Had he known what fire was, he could have cooked his rice much sooner. <laughs>